The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 6, The Rise of Labor and the Myth of the Robber Baron. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Before we get started, as always, thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for the email list while you're there. Check out our our sources that we're using for this season or any other season. If you're into the social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. If you would like to help the show out, you can join our Patreon. The link is on the website. And I do appreciate everyone who has joined. It really does help the, cover the costs of books and the website and hosting and all that good stuff. So thank you very much. You can also email me questions or comments or concerns. The email is sean at the American History Podcast.com. Now, if you don't want to support the show through Patreon, another way for you to do so is to enter Amazon through one of the links on the website. Just click on one of the hyperlink sources and that'll take you to Amazon. You don't even have to buy the actual book that you clicked on. Just continue browsing on Amazon, and when you purchase stuff, good old Uncle Jeff, he's going to send yours truly a few pennies. Costs you nothing, and the show benefits. So it's a win-win. All right, um, this week, or we got to start, as always, with the song of the week. This week, the song is We Shall Not Be Moved. See you on the other side. All right, so let's talk about the rise of the labor movement in the United States. Now, as I'm sure you've heard or read about, the conditions in the factories during the Industrial Revolution were, let's say, less than ideal. Some of the factories had conditions that were truly horrible. Now, having said that, not each and every single job and each and every single factory was the same thing. Um, I don't want to paint with that broad of a brush. Um, we'll discuss more later, but let's talk for a moment about why. Now, first, many of these Low, were low-skill jobs. And this meant that almost anyone could do the job, and that meant workers were abundant. So the owner or the owners of the factories didn't need to make um, the place pleasant or safe. So they could easily replace anyone who didn't like it or who was injured on the job. Now, before mechanization, most manufacturing was done by skilled craft workers such as shoemakers and saddle makers, but now you have people with little skills being used to make things that, um, that once could only be made by a select few. Thus, often the working conditions uh, were dismal and impersonal. Recourse for those workers was minimal, as the owners often had both economic and political power. Strikes, which did take place, were often nullified by the use of scab workers to break the strike. The courts, uh, a reflection of the conservative nature of society at the time, often ruled in favor of the companies. These companies could also ask states to call in troops and help put down the strike. If they didn't go down that road, they could, and often did, lock workers out, essentially starving them into submission. Another tactic was to force would-be employers to, or employees to sign a yellow dog contract. Now, these forbade employees from joining a union and organizing against management. Another tactic employed by the company was to blacklist troublesome workers so they'd find it difficult at best to find employment elsewhere. Then to make matters worse, 
many of these workers lived in company towns. While they were sometimes provided housing in these towns, uh, employees were often paid in script, which was only redeemable at the company grocery store and for use to pay rent in cases where housing was not a benefit. Often, these stores charged high prices, and the rent for housing was also exorbitant, thus leading the workers to live lives in a cycle of continuous debt. Now, having said that, there were some positives that came out of this. Industrialization and automation did, for example, create some short-term job loss. However, over the long term, it led to more jobs in areas previously unforeseen. Further, as the 19th century wore on, especially in the United States, prices were generally falling thanks to increasing productivity and the increasing amount of goods being made in factories. This benefited the poor especially, as they saw their standard of living slowly increasing over the century. Now, one negative from all of this was that eventually the, pro- the public grew tired of the frequency of strikes and more and more became unsympathetic to the demands of labor. To Americans in the late 19th and even the 20th century, the labor movement itself, and strikes in particular, seemed foreign ideas and were associated with socialism. Thus, in their minds, they were unpatriotic ideas. Secondly, while conditions might have been bad, many workers had comparatively high wages. Finally, labor's goal of currency reform, which was really a call for inflation of the currency through the use of silver, worried conservatives as well as those who were savers. Remember, in an inflationary environment, it does not behoove one to save. If you put $100 in a savings account, and that account, as an example, pays 3% interest, but inflation is 6%, then you've lost 3 percentage points. Now, having said that, the aftermath of the Civil War had the effect of providing a boost to labor unions. How? Well, in three ways. First, the drain on human resources, almost one million men were killed in that conflict, put more value on labor. Second, in the immediate aftermath of the war, the cost of living increased thanks to inflation. This added an an incentive to workers to unionize. Thus, by 1872, several hundred thousand organized workers and 32 national unions existed, including unions for bricklayers, typesetters, and even shoemakers. Finally, collective bargaining emerged as a standard union demand. Workers wanted to vote for their own representation as to who would negotiate on their behalf with company work owners. Now, the first National Labor Union founded in the United States was the National Labor Union, founded in 1866. Now, this union provided a major boost to the union movement and was led by William Silvis. I hope I said that right. This organization sought to bring together skilled craft unions into one large union. It only lasted for six years, but at its peak, its membership numbered 600,000 workers. It focused on social reforms, such as the abolition of the wage system, and on an eight-hour workday, as well as arbitration of industrial disputes. While it didn't achieve all of its goals, it was successful in implementing an eight-hour workday, as well as the arbitration of industrial disputes. At least, eventually, they got that. Now, another important uh, labor union founded in the aftermath of the war between the states was the Colored National Labor Union. This was founded in 1869 by African Americans after they were encouraged to form a separate branch of the NLU. Thanks to the Panic of 1873, along with the decision of leadership to get involved in electoral politics, the NLU dissolved in 1873. Okay, so that leads us to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Now, in 1877, several railroads announced wage cuts of 10%. This was the second time 
They'd been forced to do this since 1873. This led to the first nationwide strike, paralyzing railroads throughout the East and the Midwest, and idling hmm, some 100,000 workers. Now later, coal miners, craft workers, farmers, and even the unemployed ended up joining in. At its height, it involved 14 states and 10 railroads. President Hayes sanctioned the use of federal troops in Pennsylvania, which set a precedent for future federal intervention. The strike, and the violence associated with it, led to 100 deaths and ended up terrifying the property classes in the United States. The strike also inspired support for the Greenback Labor Party in 1878 and the Working Man's Parties in the 1880s. And we'll talk about some of these parties in depth um, in hopefully the next episode. Next, we have the Knights of Labor. Now, this group was led by Terence Powderly, a moderate, and it was founded in 1869 as a secret society. I Just as an aside, I love secret societies, don't you? Um, if they're so secret, how do we know about them? But anyways, I, I digress. It continued to operate in secrecy until 1881 to prevent retribution by employers. Now, one of their tactics was to use Republican imagery associated with Lincoln, and they promoted the idea that each man should have a say in the political and economic issues that affected him. Finally, and it's probably a reason the Knights of Labor wanted to remain a secret society, uh, much of the labor, or the leadership, I should say, was Irish. And I'm sure you know that in the late 19th century, the Irish were not considered white in America and were treated, at best, as second-class citizens. One of the goals of the movement, perhaps surprisingly, was they wanted to include all workers in, quote, one big union, end quote, that would include both African-American workers and women as well. This industrial unionism was an idea that was ahead of its time, as it would not truly be seen until the 1930s. Remember, in the 19th century, most unions were trade unions with skilled workers. Now, having said that, the Knights were most interested in economic and social reform. It wanted to create um, producers' cooperatives, implement codes for safety and health, and end child labor. The idea of a cooperative paralleled a similar idea to the Grange in the West. It sought to replace the wage system with all workers owning factories. So I guess you could say this organization was somewhat influenced by the ideas of socialism. It fought for an eight-hour workday through the use of strikes, which were successful um, to some extent, as well as higher pay and equal uh, pay for women. A third goal it sought was increasing government regulation of the railroads, the postal savings banks, and an increase in government paper currency, also known as, you guessed it, inflation. Fourth, it sought arbitration rather than industrial warfare. It discouraged strikes and violence as a means for change, so I guess you could say that is a positive. Um, however, I should mention that while they did have a ban on strikes at one point, that was eventually ignored and led to their demise. Lastly, they did win a major strike in 1885 against Jay Gould's Wabash uh, Railroad Line. and This victory helped to push the membership uh, to over 700,000 members in 1886. Now, having said that, the end was near. In 1886, the Great Upheaval would lead to the demise of the Knights. Um, this was a year in which there were 1,400 strikes involving 500,000 workers. There was also the Haymarket Square bombing incident. And uh, at this point, the public began to think of the Union as this huge organization that could easily throw the economy into chaos. Further, it took part in a number of May Day strikes in 1886, that damaged the reputation of the organization. However, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was the Haymarket Square bombing in Chicago. Now, on May 4th, 1886, 
Chicago police advanced on a meeting called uh, to protest alleged police brutality in the May Day strikes. A stick of dynamite was thrown into the crowd and killed eight police officers, while 60 more were injured by police fire. Um, Seven or eight civilians were killed, and as many as 40 more civilians were injured. Now, the result was the first full-blown Red Scare in Chicago, and it lasted for mm, about two months. Now, another result was that the rise of these working men's parties and unions uh, scared conservatives who blacklisted members through employers' associations. More and more employees had to sign those yellow dog contracts or take ironclad oaths. Furthermore, the Knights of Labor became mistakenly associated with anarchists. Their eight-hour workday movement suffered, and subsequent strikes ended in failure. Now, in the end, the inclusion of skilled and unskilled labor workers proved to be a fatal flaw. Unskilled labor could easily be replaced with scabs. High-class craft unionists enjoyed a superior bargaining position. They became frustrated with having to give up that advantage due to the failure of unskilled labor strikes. The leader of the Knights, Terence Powderly, known as a cautious leader, supposedly stifled rank-and-file mobilization by opposing strikes and forbidding political action. Skilled craftsmen sought a union of exclusively skilled craft workers. And finally, by 1890, uh, membership rolls stood at about 100,000 100, people, a massive drop since the heights of 1885, early 86. Most of these people left to join other protest groups. Now, another major group was the AFL, or the American Federation of Labor. And this group was formed in 1886 under the leadership of Samuel Gompers. It consisted of an association of self-governing national unions with the AFL unifying the overall strategy. Now, believe it or not, Gompers' path was fairly conservative as he opposed socialism and preferred to be non-political. Having said that, he did accept the Marxist idea of there being two conflicting classes, the workers, or the proletariat, and the employers, or the capitalists. His desire was for labor to win its fair share, better wages and hours and improved working conditions. Sometimes these are referred to as bread and butter issues. Um, Now, one of the strategies implemented by the AFL was something called the closed shop. All workers in an industry had to belong to the union. This was eventually outlawed in the United States by the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. However, in the meantime, it helped the union by uh, providing the necessary funds to write out prolonged strikes. Finally, when it comes to the AFL, the chief tactic used by the union was the walkout and the boycott. Both of these proved effective to a greater extent than its other methods. However, the union never took off like unions did in Europe, and by 1900, it had about half a million members. Further, it was not without its critics, many of whom referred to it as the labor trust, linking labor and its methods to those used by big business. Now, in the 1890s, there were a couple of major strikes. Um, The first was the Homestead Strike of 1892. Now, this occurred in Carnegie's steel plant near Pittsburgh. Henry Clay Frick and Carnegie announced that they were cutting pay for steelworkers by 20%. Further, after a strike in 1889, Carnegie management came to the conclusion that the plant was essentially being run by the union, the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers, also known as the AA. This might have been due to the fact that the union contract contained 58 pages of footnotes defining work rules at the plant, as well as limiting the ability of the management to maximize output. Anyway, the AA, after the strike in 1889, 
saw substantial gains with membership doubling and the local treasury containing a balance of um, about $150,000. This led the union to become belligerent, and the relationship between the union leaders and the company became more and more strained. Now, for his part, Andrew Carnegie placed Henry Clay Frick in charge of the company's operations in 1881. Frick had, at one point, vowed to break the union, and he blamed them for the plant's inability to hit production targets. Thus, with the labor agreement coming to an end on June 30, 1892, management and union leaders were headed towards a fight. Negotiations started in February, but by late April, no agreement was in sight. Carnegie encouraged Frick to try and break the union, as they both believed it was hindering the efficiency of the factory. On April 30th, Frick announced that he could continue to bargain for another month or so, after which time Carnegie Steel would no longer recognize the union. Amazingly, negotiations continued until late June, by which time Frick locked the workers out of the plant. This was June 28th. On June 30th, at a mass uh, AA meeting, leaders announced the company broke the contract by locking the workers out a day before the actual contract expired. The Knights of Labor agreed to walk out alongside the AA workers and employees at Carnegie's plants in Pittsburgh, Duquesne, Union Mills, and Beaver Falls. They all went on strike in solidarity with the homestead workers. Now, by this point, the plant was surrounded by barbed wire fencing and even had sniper towers with searchlights constructed near each of the buildings. Nonetheless, workers surrounded the factory grounds, refusing to allow scabs to entry to, through the picket lines. In order to attempt to break the strike, Frick called in 300 Pinkerton detectives. Now, this might sound odd to our modern ears, but in the 19th century, it was typical for businessmen to hire the Pinkerton Agency to do things like infiltrate unions, supply uh, guards, and keep strikers out of factories. They even hired squads of goons to intimidate workers. Now, in the end, the strikers armed themselves and forced the Pinkertons to surrender after nine agents and seven workers were killed and about 150 others were wounded. Finally, the governor of Pennsylvania had to bring in 8,000 members of the state militia and scabs were brought in and hired to replace workers. Thus, the strike was broken. Furthermore, dozens of workers were indicted on 167 counts of murder, rioting, and conspiracy, but the jury found the leadership innocent. Needless to say, this broke the union. It showed that a strong employer could, in fact, break a union if it hired a private police force and could gain protection from the government um, and the courts. Now, this brings us to the second major strike of the 1890s, the Pullman Strike. The Pullman Palace Car Company responded to the aforementioned Great Strike, uh, Great Railroad Strike of 1877 by building a model company town for its workers near its Chicago factory. The Panic of 1893 hit the company hard, and it had to cut wages by one-third in order for it to survive. However, it failed to cut rent prices in the company town, which of course angered the workers. Now this led um, Eugene Debs to help organize the American Railway Union, of about 150,000 rail industry workers. They went on strike while overturning some uh, Pullman cars. Railway traffic from Chicago to the Pacific Coast was paralyzed. The Attorney General, Richard Olney, sent in federal troops citing interference with the transit of U.S. mail as the reason. Now, President Grover Cleveland said, quote, if it takes the entire Army and Navy to deliver a postcard in Chicago, that card will be delivered. Violence spread to several states consisting are costing 34 people their lives. The strike was crushed and the ARU destroyed. Debs and his lieutenants were sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. 
Um, Debs used his time in jail to read radical literature, which influenced his later leadership of the socialist movement in the United States. Now, the significance of this strike is that it's the first time the federal government used an injunction to break a strike. It made striking an activity not previously defined as illegal a crime. Thus, strikers were held in contempt of court and could be imprisoned without so much as a jury trial. Now, between 1881 and 1900, 23,000 strikes occurred involving 6.5 million workers, which is a large raw number, no doubt. However, it only represented um, about 3% of all working people. The public did finally begin to accept the rights of workers to organize, began collectively bargaining, or bargain collectively, and to go on strike. In 1894, Labor Day was made a legal holiday by Congress. On the other hand, um, by 1900, unions had largely failed to achieve their goals. Wages remained almost the same when compared to 1865. However, I should note that prices were gently falling, and thus the standard of living was actually increasing. Work hours did remain high in most industries, and working conditions were less than ideal. When it comes to unions, um, most were either broken or severely weakened by either owner or ship or government actions. In the end, the AFL was among the few unions that remained intact and saw improvements um, for workers. Now here I'd like to pose a question. Did the labor movement have a positive effect on working conditions? I'm not too sure, and I don't think we can be totally sure of whether it did or didn't. Now first, remember, correlation is not causation. Yes, you had the labor movement, and then you had, eventually, improved working conditions. Eventually, child labor is outlawed, wages increase, and the eight-hour workday is implemented. However, was it due to the labor movement or due to the fact that the society in question, the United States, was becoming increasingly wealthy? I think you could make the argument that, yes, labor had some effect, and I'd agree with that. Um, the problem is, how large was that effect? Well, I'll leave you to decide. Okay, so that's it for today. Our next episode will be out um, in a couple weeks. Until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 